Good evening. It's good to see y'all. Good to see y'all the week before Thanksgiving. Uh, we will not meet next week, but we will the week after, Lord willing. Um, actually, I, I don't know if I, I've announced this yet, but uh, the week after Thanksgiving, we're having the whole church, not, you know, people upstairs and everybody except the youth, they've got something going on. We're having a night of prayer and praise in the sanctuary. So that'll be December 2nd. And then uh, the ninth, we'll have more of a Christmas theme time where we'll get together and sing carols and read scripture. But so we'll be, this is our last night in 1 Corinthians for a few weeks, and then, uh, and then we'll resume. But tonight we're in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with 1 Corinthians 14, but if you're familiar with it, you're probably thinking, oh, this is going to be good. This is kind of the preaching equivalent of juggling chainsaws. So uh, how many of you showed up just because you want to see me lose an arm, right? That's what I want to know. A lot of controversial stuff in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, so just to get us back on the same page context-wise, ever since chapter 11, Paul has been discussing how we treat one another within the church. That matters to God, the relationships we have within his family. Chapter 11 says we should always consider the feelings of others, even those we consider weaker than us in Christ. Um, it even matters how we dress, according to Paul. We should think about how that affects others and their, their, uh, their perception of, of the church and their ability to worship. Chapter 12 is where Paul gives us that great image of the body of Christ, and every member has the equal importance. Every member matters because each member serves a particular function based on the spiritual gifts that God gave them, just like a thumb doesn't function in the same way as a kneecap and so forth. Every part of the body of Christ matters. And then in chapter 13, we looked at last week, it says that what matters most is love. Not your giftedness, not even the amount you give in the offering plate or how much scripture you know or how good you are at avoiding sin. What matters most is your love for others. Love within the body of Christ and love for others is the way God measures us and what He expects of us and where He's trying to get us to. So again, this all mainly seems to be driven by there's a faction in the church in Corinth who considered themselves quote-unquote spiritual. We are the spiritual members of the church. The rest of you are non-spiritual. And the reason they consider themselves spiritual seems to be because of their ability to speak in tongues. So Take that. Now let's do a history lesson about this idea of tongues. This isn't all the controversial stuff in 14. We're, you're going to find out there's more than just the, the tongue speaking issue, but it is the bulk of the, the territory in chapter 14, so I need to spend a little time here. Acts chapter 2 tells us the story of the day of Pentecost, when uh, the disciples were all together under one roof in the upper room, and suddenly the Holy Spirit fell upon them like a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire separated and appeared over the heads of each of the apostles, and they were suddenly able to speak in languages they had never been able to speak in before. Uh, they didn't have to take lessons. They didn't have to read books. They didn't have to travel overseas. All of a sudden, they're speaking in a language they'd never known. And it happened to be the, the festival of Pentecost, one of the great pilgrimage festivals of Israel. And so the streets were jammed with pilgrims from all over the world, all Jewish. And so as they walked outside, each one speaking in a different language, speaking the words of the gospel, the people who were gathered there heard the gospel being spoken in their home language and thought, my goodness, how is this possible? Because they could tell 
these were Galileans. They could tell by their accents. And Galileans were known as the dumb Israelites. You know, these guys, they can barely speak Hebrew. How are they able to speak my language? And so uh, that drew a crowd. And then Peter got up and preached the gospel and thousands were saved. There are two other times in Acts where something similar to this happens. The second one is when the apostles, after Philip has gone into Samaria, he's been Philip the, the deacon, the evangelist, has gone into Samaria and been the first Christian to take the gospel to the Samaritans, and many are saved. So the apostles go to check things out, and when they lay hands on the Samaritan believers, suddenly they start speaking in tongues. The third example in Acts is when Paul first came to Ephesus, and he met this group of 12 men who were believers in John the Baptist's message, but they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. And so Paul told them the gospel, they believed, and they began speaking in tongues. So those are the three instances in Acts when this happens. Now fast forward, 1906, a, a man named William Seymour, a preacher who, by the way, studied in a Bible college in Houston, was preaching at, on, in a church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And suddenly something happened that no one had seen in almost 2,000 years. People started speaking in strange languages in the middle of the service. And it became known as the Azusa Street Revival. That's the beginning of what we know now as the Pentecostal movement of Christianity. Which, by the way, is not the largest segment of Christianity, but it is the fastest growing today. The Pentecostal charismatic branch of the faith is the fastest growing one in the world. Now, growing up as I did in a Southern Baptist church out in the country, I heard lots of stories about uh, Baptist churches like mine experiencing holy rollers coming in and trying to change everything. Holy rollers was the kind of denigrating term we used for people who were Pentecostal, or we called them Bapticostals, right? They were Baptist, but they had gone, they'd gone Pentecostal. And so preachers feared this. Many, many sermons were preached against this. Uh, I know that one church that I pastored uh, many, many years before I was there, they'd had a split in the church because the preacher had stood up and said, if any of you even goes and attends one of those churches where they do this kinds of stuff, you're, I'm going to throw you out. And so a bunch of people just walked out just because they didn't want to be told by their pastor what they could or couldn't do. So lots of division in the church on this issue. And as I've shared with you in past weeks, there arose a, a theological belief called cessationism after the word to cease, uh, which said speaking in tongues and miracles and healings and prophecies, those were for the New Testament era, but they ended with the completion of the New Testament canon. In other words, once the final book of the Bible was finished being written, Revelation, God doesn't use those gifts anymore. And as I shared, I understand why that belief exists. I just, I don't think you can prove that from Scripture. But you've got people on one end who would describe themselves as Pentecostal charismatic, and not all Pentecostal charismatics are this way, but on one end you have people who say, if you're a true believer in Jesus and you want it bad enough, God will give you the gift of tongues. And that's how you'll know, that's how you'll know you've really experienced the fullness of Christ. They call it the second blessing or receiving the Holy Spirit. They would even say you don't have the Holy Spirit until that happens. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the people who I would who would call themselves cessationists and say, nope. And they would have a very, very dim view of anybody Pentecostal charismatic and, and think that that's something sent by the devil to destroy the church. So where is the truth in all of this? Uh, I don't know that Paul could have foreseen that 2,000 years later we would be having all these discussions. 
but his words are still relevant. So in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a, in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So right there, we see a couple of things. We see, first of all, that when Paul is talking about speaking in tongues, he's not talking about what happened on the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, they were speaking in human languages. They were speaking in Persian and Latin and so forth on down the line. But here he specifically says, Somebody speaking in tongues doesn't speak to men, he speaks to God. He speaks in a language no one can understand. But God, he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So this is something different than what we see in, in Acts 2. Second thing we see, though, in number the number two thing we see from this passage is that Paul says, yes, that's a legitimate gift, but prophecy's better. Now, as far as I know, this is the only time when Paul ranks a gift and says one is better than the other. Remember, he's just been through this big, long chapter in chapter 12 about how everybody is important, everybody matters. But here he says, if you, have, if you, if you could choose one or the other, if you're longing for a gift and you're asking God, Lord, pour this gift out upon me, he said, I would rather you choose to prophesy than to speak in tongues. So what is prophecy? Prophecy in Scripture is not necessarily the ability to tell the future. That's what a lot of people think when they hear prophecy. But prophecy literally is telling the words of God. So in the ancient world, before Scripture was complete, how did you know what God was saying unless a prophet showed up and said, here's what, here's what the Lord says, thus saith the Lord. And so, for instance, Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, thus says the Lord, you better repent or, well, actually he doesn't even say that. Thus says the Lord, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Or Amos goes up to northern Israel from southern Judah and says, God's going to destroy this nation if you don't repent, and so forth and so on. Isaiah, you know, talking to Ahaz and telling him, don't make a deal with the Assyrians. You don't need, to, you don't need their help. You just need to trust in the Lord. That's a prophet. So a, prophet, a prophecy is when someone says, God told me to tell you this, essentially. All right. So Paul says it's better to have the gift of prophecy than the gift of tongues. Why? Because someone who speaks in tongues is only building up himself. It's not benefiting others. Whereas someone who prophesies builds up others and strengthens them. So this is the very definition of what Paul said at the end of chapter 12 when he said, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Your question when you're, when you're longing to be gifted by God is, what would do the most good for the church? All right, so verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. By the way, I'm, reading, I'm going to read a long section all the way through 19. You're going to wonder why Paul spends so much time on this, and it's because it was such an issue in the church. You're going to get his message within a few verses, but he's going to keep at it because he's really trying to convince people who think that tongue speaking is the sign of ultra-spirituality that they're wrong. So I'm going to read this whole section on through 19 and, and so we get it down and then move on. Verse 7, 
If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So you can, you can kind of reconstruct what's going on in Corinth. Remember, we saw the chaos that was going on around the Lord's Supper, where the wealthier members of the church would indulge and the poorer members would go without. In the same way, there was this chaos within worship where everyone who had the gift of tongues felt the need to show off and to show how spiritual they were. And so we can imagine maybe there were three or four or five at the same time uttering these unintelligible words and everyone else just kind of sitting there listening, not knowing what's going on, not getting anything out of it, except being told, well, if you were as spiritual as I was, you'd be doing this too. And you can see how that doesn't build up the church, nor does it nor does it glorify God in any way. Paul's analogy is really great. It's, it's no different than someone playing a harp or a guitar or a piano just hitting the same note over and over and over again. Well, that doesn't help anyone. That's, that's unintelligible. Or a bugler uh, in an army who just goes out and just blows constantly. Well, that doesn't help muster the troops. So in verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Paul was not very tactful, was he? Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? See, that's what I'm talking about. If a visitor, a non-Christian comes in and encounters a room full of people all shouting at the top of their lungs words that can't even be understood, they're going to turn on their heel and leave. And they're never going to come back and they're going to miss the gospel. Verse 24, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The thing about prophecy is, if it's truly from God, it is exactly what the hearer needs to hear. Which, by the way, on a side note, is one reason why the prophets were never liked, and many of them were killed because people don't want to hear what God has to say to them. People uh, often get angry when they hear the hard truth about themselves. But Paul's point is, one of two things is going to happen when someone hears prophecy that's truly from the Lord. Either they're going to get angry and leave, or they're going to be cut to the quick 
and they're going to repent, and they're going to be saved. So what I want you to see here is we've already seen, Paul says, we should consider one another in, in what we eat, in how we talk, and even how we dress within the body of Christ. But we should also think of those who are lost. Now, these days, it is not as common as it used to be for non-Christians to come to church unless they are invited by a church member. And even then, you've, you've probably experienced this. It's hard to get your non-Christian friends to come to church with you. You invite and you invite and you bribe and you plead. It's hard. But even so, even so, even if there's only one or two on a Sunday morning, we should consider them. We should be cognizant of the fact somebody here today might be an unbeliever. This might be their first time in church. They might come here today thinking these Christians are all nuts in the head. So let's make sure we show them love and we show them decorum and we show them uh, the order that is glorifying to God. So the conclusion of all that section, did you notice that Paul said, I speak in tongues more than all of you? Yes. And we haven't gotten there yet, but verse 30, in verse 39, he specifically says, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not in a position where I'm qualified to judge the pastors of the generation before me who fought against Bapticostals and were so afraid that their church would do that. This is an interesting side note, though. When I was in seminary, one of our professors said, don't be so afraid of Pentecostalism in your churches, because after all, it's easier to put out a fire than it is to raise the dead. I thought that was pretty good. So I'm not judging those men because they, there were a lot of churches split by this issue, but to st take a stand and say you can never speak in tongues is specifically unbiblical. When our, when our foreign mission board several years ago said any man or any woman who speaks in a private prayer language to God is not qualified to serve as a missionary. I don't think that was right, personally. Now, God is the judge and not me, but I just feel like that's not right. But he also said, tongues are not the highest of gifts. That's not what you should long for. It's not the sign of super spirituality that they made it seem to be in Corinth, and that some churches on that end of the spectrum would today make it seem to be. Okay? So that's that issue. That's the best I can do on that issue. Verse 26, he moves on to just general how you conduct yourselves in worship. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another one sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So... I remember the first time I read this being very confused because I thought, boy, what Paul's saying doesn't sound at all like church that I'm used to, where everyone just gets up and shares. But keep in mind, he was talking about, here's how you do things in Corinth. And most churches in that time were in homes, right? You don't, when you're thinking about churches in the New Testament, don't, don't picture people sitting in pews in a big building. That didn't exist yet. These were people gathered in homes and they would share. And sure, there would often be one person who was the, the ruling elder or the pastor or whatever you want to call him, but 
they would take turns sharing as they felt God had led them. Paul's point is not that every church has to do things this way. Paul's point is verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Make sure that what you do is done in order. Whatever you do, make sure it's done in an orderly fashion so that those who come understand what's going on, so that God is glorified. Nobody's trying to show off. It's not about you. It's about Him. Notice also, though, he says, if you have a tongue, if, if God has laid on your heart to say something in an unknown language, but there's nobody there to interpret, then keep it to yourself. Which tells me, you know, I've never had this gift. It tells me that people who have that gift can control it, can stop. If it's not something they just burst out with and say, oh, well, I couldn't help myself. Paul says, keep it to yourself. It's just for you and God, unless there's somebody there to tell us what is being said. And also notice it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is being said. And I just used to, I used to sort of just gloss over that until I realized that's the part that everybody played in that style of worship. Someone would get up and say, I believe God told me to say this. And the rest would sit around and say, okay, does that sound consistent with what we know from the Word of God? Does that sound consistent with what Paul has taught us, with what Jesus said, uh, with what the Old Testament indicates? They would weigh it. And if it didn't sound right, they would all say, brother, we don't think that was God speaking to you. I believe that's what Paul is talking about here when he says the others weigh what is said. Because it was prophecy. They weren't teaching the Word of God. They weren't saying according to the Gospel of Luke or according to the book of Exodus. They were saying, God laid this on my heart and I'm going to share it with you. So it was the job of the whole church to measure that, to weigh that. And since it was a small group, they could do that in discussion. All right. So you got your seatbelts buckled. Here comes the next part. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And again, that's the theme of the whole chapter. All things should be done decently and in order. But what, is, what about what he says about women in the church? So... There are three main texts when it comes to women in the church, and two of them are in 1 Corinthians. This one is one. At my previous church, we had a very strong college and career class. One of our best Bible teachers was the leader, and his wife was uh, in charge of hospitality and, and, and administration of the department. They did a great job. Um, I rem and every day during Sunday school time, I would go visit wanted to get to know those young people and make sure they knew me. And I, want, I remember I walked in one day and the wife of this couple, um, let's call her Jackie. Jackie had a look on her face that I knew something unusual had happened. And so I asked her husband, let's call him John, what's wrong with Jackie? He said, he kind of laughed and said, well, you see that young man over there? And I said, yeah. And he goes, he walked in, we've never seen him before. And Jackie walked up to him and said, well, hello, welcome to our church. We've got breakfast. Come make a plate. We're glad you're here. 
And he didn't even acknowledge her. He walked over to me and said, I do not believe that a woman is allowed to speak in church, and so I am not going to address your wife. <laughs> and Jackie, to her credit, did not pinch his head off, did not curse him out, did not yell at him. She just kind of zipped her lips and kept her thoughts to herself. I can imagine what those thoughts were. But if this verse, if this passage is the only thing the Bible says about how women should behave in church, then he was exactly right. He was right to do what he did. But it's not the only thing the Bible says about women in the church. In fact, it's not the only thing 1 Corinthians says about women in the church. 1 Corinthians 11, remember, talks about men and women and how they should dress when they're praying or prophesying and men should have uncovered heads and women should have covered heads. And remember, we dealt with that and how complicated all that is. And, but the point I want you to see is in, in 11 verse 5, Paul says, a woman, here I have it right here, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So Paul's saying, Corinthian ladies, when you get up to prophesy or when you get up to lead in prayer, make sure you've got a head covering because that's right. And remember, we, we talked about it weeks ago, why that is, we're not going to rehash it. That doesn't, I believe that's something that doesn't apply to today, the, the aspect of head coverings. It was a cultural thing. My point is, Paul has already said, women are prophesying in the church in Corinth. He didn't forbid it. He didn't say, you should keep it to yourself. He didn't say in chapter 11, women just need to keep silent. So why does he say that here? So there's two possibilities. What, what some people say is, well, he's talking about when women get together when it's just them and other ladies, right? Well, that's not stated anywhere in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture. We never see, uh, you know, you women go and teach yourself. We don't see that anywhere. I'm not saying it never happened. I'm saying that's never uh, mentioned in the Bible. So that's, that's pure speculation. If that's the view you want to hold, that's fine. Just know that you're not, you're not standing on, on solid ground scripturally. The other possibility, and this is what I believe, is that Paul is, is addressing a specific situation in the Corinthian church. Remember, the word in Greek could mean wives, could mean women. But in the context here, it seems to be addressed to wives. So I think, and, and this is the, the view that more and more people are believing, it's talking about that whole idea of weighing prophecy. Remember, in that church, people would get up and say, the Lord told me to say this, and then everybody would weigh it. So I think what Paul is saying is, wives, don't contradict your husbands in public. Your husband gets up and he's got a prophecy and you're sitting there and you think, oh, George doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't shame him publicly. Let someone else dis disagree with him if he wants, but don't cause dissension in your home. Don't cause dissension in the church. If you've got a question for him, ask him when you get home. Otherwise, just keep silent. I think that, that to me does the best job of explaining the contradiction between chapter 11 and chapter 14. Paul is not making a blanket statement of women should never speak. He's saying in this situation, when you're in worship and these things happen, wives don't cause problems with your husbands. I'm not saying I would die for this interpretation. I'm not saying I'm as sure of that as I am that Jesus rose again. Not by any means. I'm saying that's the best explanation I've heard. So, I've still got all my arms, so that's good. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to close with this. 
whenever I hear about subjects like this, especially speaking in tongues, I think about uh, a guy I knew named Bryant Lee. Bryant Lee was an African, was, is an African-American man, um, grew up in St. Louis in a gang-infested neighborhood. Uh, when he became an adult, he converted to Islam, the nation of Islam. Uh, and it, it, that was attractive to him because, you know, you see all these well-dressed guys with their bow ties and they seem to have things together. He said they were the only ones in his neighborhoods who were trying to shut down the crack houses and run off all the pimps and, and make the neighborhood good. He joined the army and met a fellow soldier and they got married. Um, and while they were stationed at a base in Kansas, a woman in their apartment became friends with his wife. And over time, his wife started attending church with this woman, which bothered him because he wanted her to be a Muslim like him. And then she came home and she had accepted Christ and was getting baptized. And that made him furious. And so he told, she'd been asking him, come to church with me, come to church with me. Well, finally he said, I'll go to church with you this next Sunday. Well, what he didn't tell her was, he went to church with a bayonet in the pocket of his uh, jacket because he was going to kill that preacher that day in front of everyone for doing this to his wife. And he sat during the sermon as he listened. It was a Pentecostal church and the preacher was talking about speaking in tongues. And he said, as he was talking about this, I thought, well, this guy's crazy. Now I really want to kill him. But then all of a sudden, with no explanation, he just had this feeling come over him. Something grabbed him on the inside and he felt utterly and completely dirty and lost and broken. And he began to weep uncontrollably. He began to be, feel this desperation to meet this Jesus that his wife had and to have this forgiveness that she had received and to become a new person like she had become. And so at the end of this long sermon, the preacher extended the invitation and Bryant got up and went to the front, but he didn't pull that bayonet out. He walked up and took the man's hand and accepted Jesus. And today he's a Baptist pastor. And I think about two things about that story, and one is not at all related to our passage today. It's that there's an entire family that knows Jesus, and there's probably thousands of people who've heard about Jesus through my friend Bryant because one woman made friends with his wife, right? So when we talk about transforming relationships, that's an example. You don't, you don't know the difference you can make when you choose to be friends with someone, and this is an example. But the other thing, Think about how relentless our God is. Whether you're the person in Corinth who feels like, oh, I'm not, I'm not worth anything because I don't speak in tongues, and God sends this letter from the Apostle Paul of all people that says, no, you're just as valuable. In fact, there's a better gift than that one. Or whether you're my friend contemplating murder, God chases you. God never gives up. You were made for more than just an ordinary life. And that's exciting news. So... Let's pray and pray that God would do this kind of thing again and again. Almighty God, we thank You for this day. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would do within us everything that You plan and desire and that we would not resist You. We would not quench You. But Lord, would be led by You and filled with You. I pray, Lord, for the divide among the churches that... Uh, Father, no matter how we choose to worship or uh, you know, what we believe about spiritual gifts, help us to remember what's most important is your blood on the cross and your resurrection the third day, and your grace by which we're saved. 
Lord, unify us and help us to come to agreement on some of these things that divide us. Lord, I pray that we would seek opportunities to befriend people who don't know you and that everything that we do within worship, we would do decently and in order as you've commanded. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.